The incredible untold story behind the attack on Pearl Harbor. Next week, the 7th of December, will be the anniversary of this incredible attack. And the first question I ask is, was the attack on Pearl Harbor really an unprecedented surprise? My history teacher in Rhodesia, Mr. Rhys Davies, Rhys Davies was also a member of Parliament, he said to us, beware the victor's version of history. Wartime propaganda morphs into peacetime textbooks, and as he said, governments lie. Mm -hmm. And uh, he also told us, you know that the British government's lying about us now in Rhodesia. Why would you trust what the British government said about anything else in all of history? And uh, he has proved to be quite true. The claim that nobody could have anticipated torpedo attacks in the shallow waters of a harbour before 7th of December 1941 is false. First of all, how many of you have heard of the Great Pacific War published in 1925. Published in 1925, the Great Pacific War, in brackets, 1931 to 1933, although it was written before, so it's a futuristic book, written by a naval um, attaché, Hector Bywater. Well, this book was, it predicted a future war between Japan and America, and interestingly, uh, Admiral uh, Yamamoto, who planned the whole Pearl Harbor attack, was in America when this was published in 1925, and he saw that it was translated to Japanese and that all the naval general staff read it. So there's a book written in 1925 predicting a war between Japan and America, although it had a lot of accurate predictions. The entire Japanese high command had read it, but apparently none of the American high command had. And the Great Pacific War went through many reprintings, very popular, and the Japanese knew it off by heart. And uh, interesting, it's just like that book that came out about uh, the Titan uh, several years before Titanic sank, about the largest ship in the world, an unsinkable ship sinking with most lives lost and so on. And that came out just a few years before the Titanic. Sometimes you get these amazing pre-predictions. But the British had proved that torpedoes could be effective in their attack on the Italian Navy at Toronto, which was also a very shallow harbour, only 33 feet deep. On 11th of November 1940, that's a full 13 months before Pearl Harbor. The Royal Navy used swordfish biplanes like First World War technology to deliver the torpedoes. On the night of the 11th into the 12th of November 1940, British naval forces under Admiral Andrew Cunningham attacked uh, the Italian Navy in a Toronto Harbor. And this included the aircraft carrier HMS Illustrious, which launched these ferry swordfish biplane torpedo bombers in the Mediterranean Sea, just 21 planes, but they destroyed most of the Regina Marina, the battle fleet of the Italians at anchor in the harbour of Toronto. The British had been developing their plan to attack the Italian battle fleet at Toronto since 1935. It had been revised every year since. So the British had these long-term plans how to destroy the navies of any rival nation, even before they were at war with them. And El Duce, uh, Benito Mussolini, one of the strongest parts of his military was the Navy, that an extremely strong Navy, a very powerful big Navy, tremendous firepower, the Regina Marina, and uh, they were based at uh, Taranto, and Taranto Harbour was only 500 miles from Malta, and Malta was the British number one refueling station and bastion for controlling uh, the Mediterranean fleet. And so, 
the Italian Navy was a threat to the British plans in the Mediterranean and their supply lines of the 8th Army, for example, in Egypt. And therefore, the British saw the need to neutralise the Italian Navy and they decided to do it with air power. It's the first time that, not exactly the first time, but almost the first time, that air power was used against navies. And it was believed at that stage it's impossible for a plane to sink a, a battleship. But, of course, the British proved that wrong at Toronto and the Japanese at Pearl Harbor. Despite the very shallow depth of the water, the aerial torpedoes proved devastatingly effective and it crippled the Italian Navy. It lost half of its capital ships in one night. Just one night. Very shallow harbour. Um, meant to be too shallow for torpedoes, but in fact it wasn't. And these biplanes, which is First World War technology basically, they had these torpedoes and these torpedoes were pretty new, newly developed, very effective uh, against uh, ships, as was proved. Just 21 biplanes launched in two sections. Uh, the first was uh, 12 and the last was 9, and they successfully sank a huge amount of the battlefleet. Now, interestingly, the Italians had torpedo nets up to protect their ships, but these torpedo nets didn't go far enough down. They were too shallow, they didn't have enough of them, and they weren't effective enough, they weren't strong enough, and didn't go deep enough, and the British were able to bypass these torpedo nets, even though the Italians recognised that there could be a problem from torpedoes, and hence their torpedo nets. And some of the aerial pictures showing the devastation caused by this attack by just 21 biplanes with torpedoes. Some had bombs. Uh, the Royal Navy raid on Toronto Bay marked the ascendancy of air power over sea power. And the fleet's air arm proved to be the Navy's most devastating weapon. Now the aircraft carrier became more important than the battleship. You wouldn't imagine just these few biplanes could cause so much devastation in such a short space of time. In the attack on Toronto, 11th of November 1940, absolutely remarkable, a sea change in world history as far as naval tactics goes. And they went through real hell of, of um, fire. They also had to get past the barrage balloons. Interestingly enough, these barrage balloons were set up there to make it hard for, sh for planes to get through because if you hit the cable of a barrage balloon, it would shave the wing off. Interesting. Now, wings in the 21st century are meant to be able to cut through reinforced steel and concrete uh, if they fly into buildings. Uh, but in history, it's always been found that even a wooden telephone pole will cut a wing in half. And there's pictures of planes landing and making a misjudgment and going too close to a telephone pole, and the telephone pole still standing and the wing just shaved off. A wooden telephone pole is stronger than a plane's aluminium. And uh, these planes... Uh, would have been destroyed if they had hit any of the cables of the barrage balloons. So here's a New York paper already in November 1940 celebrating the British wreck half of Italy's battleships. So it's not that the Americans didn't pay attention. In fact, Yamamoto, the Japanese admiral, went to Toronto Bay shortly after the attack and examined it and immediately saw the application to use against the American Pacific Fleet. And of course, he examined it very carefully and gave a full report to the Japanese Navy. So they paid careful attention to the use of torpedoes by um, aircraft carrier-launched ships. And the U.S. Navy had discussions of this new threat in June 1941. That's months before Pearl Harbor. They already, in a memorandum, considered torpedo nets as a precautionary measure to be installed in Pearl Harbor as a matter of highest urgency because of 
the fact that the British Navy had just shown torpedoes are real threats to battleships at harbour, even in a shallow harbour as Pearl Harbour was. Admiral Kimmel and his staff testified that the decision not to install torpedo nets and booms had been made by the Navy Department in Washington, D.C., by politicians, not in Hawaii. So they were criticised later, why didn't they have torpedo nets up? Well, they wanted to. It was the high command in Washington who overruled them. Seventeen months before Pearl Harbor, and quite a few months before Toronto Bay, the Royal Navy attacked the French fleet at anchor off the coast of French Algeria. And the Battle of Meres el Kabir, 3rd of July, 1940, was, it resulted in the death of over 1,200 French servicemen, the sinking of a French battleship and damaging of five other ships. This combined air and sea attack was carried out against Britain's official ally, France, and it included three ferry swordfish planes launched from an aircraft carrier who used torpedoes against the um, French battleships and the mistakes they made there they learned from and it enabled them to plan a much more effective attack on the Italian Navy at Toronto. So the French Navy suffered devastating attack from the Royal Navy in Copenhagen, the fleet at uh, Meres el Kabir. This attack remains controversial to put it mildly it created a lot of hostility between France and Britain because Britain argued that the times were desperate, invasion seemed imminent, the British government simply could not afford to risk Germany seizing control of the French fleet. The pr prominent British motive was thus dire necessity and self-preservation. However, the French insisted, as their terms of surrender with Germany did not require them handing over their fleet, which was still in French-controlled territory, the British action was treacherous. Interestingly enough, the German Kriegsmarine told Hitler that they should insist the French hand over their navy as the French insisted Germany hand over her navy at the end of the First World War in terms of the Versailles Treaty. And uh, Adolf Hitler said, no, you didn't defeat their navy, we defeat the army. We have no right to ask for their navy because we didn't defeat their navy. The navy was not involved in a battle against the Kriegsmarine. Interestingly enough, you can see the French navy is huge. It dwarfed the uh, Kriegsmarine of Germany. Now, this is an inaccurate uh, portrayal. Germany didn't even have one aircraft carrier. They're talking about the Graf Spree, which was uh, which, the Graf Zeppelin, which was planned. They laid the keel, but they never built the ship. Germany never even designed an aircraft that could land on an aircraft carrier. So this one aircraft carrier that Germany's meant to have had, and this is fictional, that's on paper only, um, but you can see that the German Navy was dwarfed by the French and the British Navy, but if Germany had acquired the French Navy, it would have made them significantly larger and more able to challenge the British. Interesting to notice that Britain and France had more submarines than Germany. Most people think, well, Germany dominated the submarine warfare. Not so. And America had more than all of them. And France had the biggest submarine in the world, by the way. Nevertheless, Germany didn't take over any French submarines or battleships. They were left in French control. And therefore, at the time... French ships were in Alexandria in Egypt and believed they were allies of Britain and they were suddenly shocked to be blockaded, bombarded and seized by the Royal Navy. Also on the 3rd of July 1940, French ships in Plymouth and Portsmouth in England were boarded and captured. And this included the French submarine Socrith, the largest submarine in the world, four other submarines, the battleships Paris and Corbeau, the destroyers Triumphant and Leopard, and some officers and sailors were killed in the struggles. Now, these attacks were justified by the British as Copenhagen the fleet. Now, if you don't know the term Copenhagen the fleet, you should. 
It explains what happened at Pearl Harbor. Admiral Horatio Nelson's famous Battle of Copenhagen on the 2nd of April 1801 was a clear inspiration for the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor in 1941. Although Denmark was officially neutral during the Napoleonic Wars, Britain feared that her navy might be seized by the French if Denmark fell to the French. It didn't, but if it did. The Battle of Copenhagen was the result of multiple failures of diplomacy, with Britain enforcing a strict blockade of France and any country trading with France, even a neutral country like Denmark or Sweden or Prussia, were regarded as legitimate targets by the Royal Navy. And Admiral Sir Hyde Parker and Vice Admiral Horatio Nelson led the attack on the Danish capital, Copenhagen, and of course their fleet. The British attack, during which Admiral Nelson famously placed his telescope to his blind eye to ignore a command to withdraw, was from the British perspective successful, spectacularly successful. 1,600 Danish sailors and soldiers were killed or wounded. Most of the Danish Navy vessels were sunk, severely damaged or captured. Ostensibly neutral, Denmark was again attacked by the Royal Navy September 1807 when the Royal Navy bombarded Copenhagen and seized the Danish fleet. As a precaution, just in case Denmark chose to join the French, which they never did. And the city came under bombardment. 3,000 soldiers and civilians, including 195 children, died in Copenhagen as a result of the British bombardment. That's even more than the American loss during the Battle of Pearl Harbor. And this devastation was justified by the British because of their policy of Copenhagen the fleets. Any potential threat could be neutralized. As the majority of the Danish army was at the southern border to protect against a possible attack from the French, the second attack on a neutral country was a scandal at that time. But I think it's been pretty much forgotten about today. Knowing the Imperial Japanese Navy was modeled on the Royal Navy, these famous battles, these strategies and these tactics of Copenhagen the fleet, of even a neutral country where a potential threat was perceived, including against Britain's French allies, Mers Al Kabir, and most tellingly at the Battle of Toronto, where aircraft using torpedoes launched from an aircraft carrier crippled a battle fleet, all of this should have been taken into consideration if the American Navy was paying attention. If they knew their history, they would also notice the Japanese Navy was modeled on the British Navy. Their uniforms, their rank structure looks very much like the British Navy. Um, in fact, this picture of a Japanese uh, battleship's officers looks like it's a British officer's um, picture, does it not? Same uniforms, same hats. And so there's this book, Old Friends, New Enemies, the Royal Navy and the Imperial Japanese Navy in the Pacific War. And the warships of the Imperial Japanese Navy was modeled also on the Royal Navy, which was the gold standard for navies. But modern American films like Toya, Toya, Toya and Pearl Harbor tend to ignore these historic precedents and they pretend that the attack on Pearl Harbor was both unprecedented and unexpected. It's probably not fair to put Tora, Tora, Tora in the same category as Pearl Harbor. Tora, Tora, Tora really tried to be historical, whereas Pearl Harbor took such liberties with history, it was mostly fiction. My father-in-law, Bill Bathman, who's American Navy, said it's a love story masquerading as a war film. Um, but yeah, Pearl Harbor's ahistoric uh, in the extreme, whereas Tora, Tora, Tora really did have a lot of historic accuracy. But they still pretended that the attack was unprecedented and unexpected. And the first surprise attack by aircraft on ships. Generations have been deceived into thinking that Pearl Harbor was a treacherous, unexpected, unprecedented attack, a day that will live in infamy, to quote from that pathological liar, 
uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. The media is not a reflection of reality. Admiral James Richardson was fired by President Roosevelt for complaining about the President's order to station the Pacific Fleet in Pearl Harbor. The Pacific Fleet's headquarters is in San Diego, not Pearl Harbor. And Admiral Richardson blamed the President for the initial defeats in the Pacific as a direct, real, and personal responsibility of FDR. Testifying before Congress when they were investigating this, you know, what led to Pearl Harbor, Richardson said, this is the fault of Franklin Delano Roosevelt's political decision. Richardson believed that stationing the Pacific Fleet in Pearl Harbor made the ships extremely vulnerable to attack and provide a poor non-strategic defense. Just have a look, the entranceway to the harbor, very narrow. If one battleship got sunk in that harbor, it would bottle up the entire fleet. And that almost happened in that Pearl Harbor. One of the battleships trying to get out was sunk in the middle but managed to beach itself to the side. If it hadn't succeeded in doing that, it could have bottled the entire fleet up in there and it would have been years before they could have gotten out. So that's the kind of idiocy. Why would you bottle up your navy in this um, turkey shoot barrel, basically? It wasn't necessary. Uh, San Diego was a much better place for the uh, headquarters for the Pacific Fleet. Captain Stafford of the US Navy in charge of communications security section of naval communications in Washington testified before the Admiral Hart Board that on the 4th of December 1941, we received definite information from two independent sources that Japan would attack the United States and Britain at 9, 9 p.m. Washington time, 6th of December 1941. We received positive information that Japan would declare war against the United States at a time to be specified thereafter. This information was positive and unmistakable and made available to military intelligence virtually at the moment of its decoding. Finally, at 10.15 a.m. Washington time, 7th of December 1941, we received positive information from Signals Intelligence Service, War Department, that the Japanese declaration war would be presented to the Secretary of State at 1 p.m. Washington time that date. When it was 1 p.m. in Washington, it would be daybreak in Hawaii and approximately midnight in the Philippines, which indicated a surprise air raid in Pearl Harbor in about three hours. Less likely you start an attack at midnight, most likely you start at um, Daybreak. So just looking at when the declaration war was going to be delivered, it was pretty obvious Pearl Harbor must be the target. President Roosevelt had ample time to broadcast a warning. December the 6th, 1941, a message to the Japanese delegation in Washington was intercepted, broken, distributed by Signal Intelligence Service. General Albert Wedemeyer is quoted by President Herbert Hoover in his book Freedom Betrayed as stating, when on December the 6th, the intercepts told us the Japanese were going to attack somewhere the very next day, whether in the Central Pacific or in the South or in the Philippines or Dutch East Indies, the President of the United States, as Commander-in-Chief of our military forces, could have gone on radio and broadcast the whole wide world. He had irrefutable evidence of an immediate Japanese intention to strike. This would have alerted everyone from Singapore to Pearl Harbor. Even though inadequate in some cases to defend effectively, nevertheless, our forces would have been able to take a toll which would have blunted the Japanese attack. You know, forewarned is forearmed to some extent. In Hawaii, the capital ships might have been moved out of the, the congested harbor to sea, where Admiral Kimmel at least had the foresight to keep the far more vital aircraft carriers. Interesting, no aircraft carriers were in Pearl Harbor on the day of the attack. Furthermore, our carrier task force in the mid-Pacific might have attacked the Japanese task force when its planes were aloft. There are many possibilities which could have given them in a fighting chance. An army inquiry conducted from July to October 1944 condemned negligence by General Marshall and other 
see the officers for having prior knowledge of the attacks from the intercepts, for not having alerted the military commanders at Pearl Harbor. And here's just one of the victims of that, the USS California. Congress was not satisfied with the military investigations, and so from November 1945 to May 1946, after the war, the Congressional Pearl Harbor investigation was held, and a minority report by the Senate members of the committee condemned an endeavor to throw as soft a light as possible on Washington. The Roberts Commission report was so hastily, inconclusively, and incomplete, some witnesses were examined on oath, others were not. Much testimony was not even recorded. Several records went missing. Most inadequate explanations were supplied. Army and Navy information indicated growing imminence of war was delivered to the highest authorities, including the President. The fatal error of Washington was to undertake a world campaign and world responsibilities without first making provision for the security of the United States, which was their prime constitutional obligation. Senior Washington authorities did not communicate to Admiral Kimmel and General Short, who were the commanders on the ground in, in Hawaii, adequate information of diplomatic negotiations and of intercepted diplomatic intelligence, which, if communicated with them, would have informed them of the imminent menace of a Japanese attack, in time for them to be fully alert and prepare the defences of Pearl Harbor. They set up these people to fail, and then they court-martialed them for the attack, which the politicians knew about but wouldn't inform the men on the ground about. The failure to perform the responsibilities indispensably essential for the defence of Pearl Harbor rests upon Franklin D. Roosevelt, Henry Simpson, Frank Knox, who was Chief of the Navy, and George Marshall, who was the Chief of Staff. And all this I'm quoting from President Herbert Hoover, Freedom of Trade. This isn't some journalist. This is President Herbert Hoover in his magnum opus, Freedom of Trade, which I've got. This is the actual telegram uh, sent out on September the 7th, air raid on Pearl Harbor, this is no drill. Now, this reached the, um, the commanders after the attack was actually in, in place, so too late, of course. Instead of radioing them, instead of phoning them, they sent a telegram. And a man on a bicycle delivered it to them, and um, they literally had in their hands while their fleet's burning around them. And in the case of, of uh, General Short, he's, his Air Force, 180 aircraft on the uh, airstrip were all shot to pieces. And, uh, you know, in the middle of that, with flames all around him, they read this telegram. Thanks, Washington, for sending us a telegram, which arrived hours after they knew about it, when it's a telephone call or radio broadcast could have given them warning beforehand. George Morganston, in his book, Pearl Harbor, The Story of a Secret War, published in 1947, wrote, with absolute knowledge of war, they refused to communicate that knowledge clearly, unequivocally, and in time, to the people in the field upon whom the blow would fall. Pearl Harbor provided the American War Party with a means of escaping dependence on a hesitant Congress and taking a reluctant people into war. After the First World War, the Democrats who had started the war got voted out of office. They were punished in the elections of 1920 so that the Republicans gained control of the House, the Senate, and uh, the White House, and they passed huge amounts of laws against America ever again getting involved in a war in Europe, or ever again supplying arms to belligerents during a war, or ever again getting involved in foreign adventurism. And so what Franklin Delano Roosevelt was doing was going against the law of the land and the sentiment of the population was overwhelmingly opposed to it. And so he was provoking war because he wanted to get America into war, but he knew the laws, the Congress, 
and the people were steadfast against it. Pearl Harbor was the first action of the acknowledged war, the last battle of the secret war, upon which the administration had long since embarked. The secret war was waged against nations which the leadership of this country had chosen as enemies months before they became formal enemies by declaration of war. It was waged by psychological means of propaganda and deception against the American people. The people were told that acts that were equivalent to war were intended to keep the country out of war. And so America was supplying vast amounts of weaponry, not only to uh, Britain and France, but to the Soviet Union. Before America was attacked, before America was in the war, the Soviet Union was getting vast amounts of American aid illegally already in 1941, long before Pearl Harbor. And America helped invade and take over Iceland, which was a neutral country, to be a, a staging post for getting more aid to Mermansk and uh, Archangel, northern Arctic route to the Soviet Union by sea. They helped Britain invade and take over Iran to make a southern channel to send vast amounts of aid to the Soviet Union. And South Africa paid for it all. General Smuts did a coup d'etat in South Africa, seized control from Prime Minister uh, James Barry Herzog, who was the most popular Prime Minister in South Africa's history. James Barry Herzog, a veteran of the First World War, refused to get involved in the Second World War, said Britain's not at stake, and certainly South Africa isn't, but this is nothing to do with Britain, it's nothing to do with South Africa, we will not mobilise the South African Army, Union Defence Force, to fight in a war that's not our own. It's not even Britain's war. And so James Barry Herzog refused to declare war. General Smuts, who had lost the last five elections against um, James Barry Herzog, seized power without an election and without a referendum. And this just gives you the hysteria of the, the democracies. Nobody elected General Smuts. He had lost the last five elections. He just seized power in South Africa because Churchill asked him to. In fact, Churchill trusted Smuts so much that in the event of Churchill being incapacitated, General Smuts would become Prime Minister of Britain. That was the arrangement. That's how much Smuts was trusted. Um, Stephen Mitford Goodson wrote in his book on General Smuts that Smuts was recruited to British intelligence during his studies in, uh, in Cambridge and that he was a British intelligence asset his whole life. Smuts was, uh, in other words, a real traitor to South Africa. One of the first things Smuts did after he seized power from James Barry Herzog is he arranged for all the gold in South Africa above ground to be shipped to Simonstown and secretly loaded onto USS Quincy. American naval ship USS Quincy was sent by FDR to Simonstown and middle of the night they loaded 20 million pounds of gold onto uh, USS Quincy which went to New York and once New York received it, America started to supply vast amounts of aid, not just to Britain but to uh, the Soviet Union. Bombers, planes, tanks, you name it, whatever they needed. Billions and billions of rounds, millions of shells and vast quantities of aid totaling into the billions of dollars in those days, trillions of dollars in today's money. And South Africa paid for it. Not that South Africans even knew about it. I had to read this in American uh, history book to find out about that. It's not in any South African book, at least not before Stephen Mitford Goodson published in, James, in the uh, Jan Smuts biography. But there was America supplying the Soviet Union with vast amounts of weapons against the laws of America. He desperately needed to get to war to justify America doing such warlike acts, invading neutral countries like Iran and, um, and Iceland, supplying a communist dictatorship in the name of being the arsenal for democracy. And here's the democracies. Who elected Stalin? 
Who elected Smuts? Did anyone elect Churchill? Churchill was not elected. He became Prime Minister of Britain because Chamberlain resigned because of a catastrophe that Churchill organised with the invasion of Norway, which went uh, very badly south very quickly. Germany uh, trumped Britain's attempt to invade Norway in 1940, and in the debacle of Norway, uh, the British Prime Minister Chamberlain had to resign, and the person who caused the problem that forced the Prime Minister in Britain to resign, Churchill, First Lord Admiralty, he became Prime Minister because nobody else wanted the job. Britain was losing the war, and uh, nobody wanted to take responsibility where it seemed like the first action would be to sign a peace treaty or surrender. So, uh, but of course, Churchill wanted the job, and so he took the job, and then They've got an unelected Prime Minister of Britain, unelected President of the Soviet Union, unelected Prime Minister of South Africa, and they're the democracies. And uh, who elected General de Gaulle as head of France, for that matter, either? So the democracies were uniformly unelected. The only one elected was Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and he's the worst of the lot, actually. So constitutional processes existed only to be circumvented until finally the war-making power of Congress was reduced to the act of ratifying an accomplished fact. Again, this isn't a journalist comment, this is President Herbert Hoover's comments in his book, Freedom Betrayed. Herbert Hoover declares in his book, Freedom Betrayed, it can never be forgotten that three times during 1941, Japan made overtures for peace negotiation. America never made one unless the futile proposal to the emperor the day before Pearl Harbor could be considered a peace proposal, which it wasn't. A peace could have been made in the Pacific that could have saved China from ravishment, would have protected the American Pacific flank. If Roosevelt was still determined to carry on his undeclared war against Germany until it provoked reprisals, that Pacific protection was the only sane course. It could have limited our engagement in any case to the European theatre. As a result of this policy, the undeclared war upon Japan, we suffered the greatest military defeat in our history with immeasurable consequences. Public opinion was overwhelmingly against our being involved in the war up to the day of Pearl Harbor. America came into World War I 33 months after its outbreak. She came into World War II 27 months after it started. The processes in the months of lag were the same. The appeal to crusade for freedom, for independence of nations, for lasting peace, the same picture of atrocities, the same fanning of hate, and above all the massive lies and stimulation of fear of invasion, they're all identical. But in World War II, the people believed much less of it, and they believed much more that they were being deliberately pushed into the war. They dimly recognized that they were being ground in the mills of power politics and the personal ambitions of men. The First World War had been conducted on the Allied side in the name of the peoples. This war was the name of Stalin, Churchill, and Roosevelt. At times, the whole political and military scene seemed to be their personal property, as it was. So says President Herbert Hoover in his book, Freedom Betrayed. 2 Peter 2 verse 19 is so appropriate. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. In the First World War, our sons marched to war with flowers in their rifles, bands and cheering people on every platform. There were no bands, no flowers, and no chairs on the railway platforms of World War II. There was little singing of war ballads by soldiers or civilians, except at the urging of paid conductors of propaganda. The station platforms were stages for grieving and tears. The promises, the speeches, the propaganda filled the air as in World War I. But this time the people received it grimly and with little believing. And here you can see, remember Pearl Harbor. 
It would be good if people remembered how the government lies, deceives, and cajoles them into war. Um, and all these propaganda posters, but it's all got one big theme, remember Pearl Harbor. Immediately after that, instructed all people of Japanese ancestry were banned from California, for example, and they rounded up and put into concentration camps. Not just Japanese citizens, but American citizens of Japanese ancestry. Americans who were born in America of Japanese ancestry, they were all rounded up and put into concentration camps. And this was pretty much um, acceptable by them. They had no problem doing that. Mind you, in South Africa and Southwest Africa, anyone of German ancestry was locked up in camps as well. As we know from um, even our good friend uh, Helga Stray, her father was locked up for six years of Second World War. Every male of, of military age, as they called it, by General Smuts' order, was uh, put into prison. In fact, in Cape Town, we had German butcheries and bakeries uh, stoned and burned uh, by mobs. And, you know, when we're talking about mobs, that's before the EFF. This was English mobs uh, stoning people. And these would be South Africans, Cape Townians, of German ancestry who had been here for generations. You know, nothing to do with that war, but they still had their shops looted, burned, stoned, burned down, and so on. And then the, the victims were locked up into concentration camps. Freedom of trade in Dykes Roosevelt for instigating the Pacific War. His economic sanctions against Japan, remember America provided 80% of Japan's oil supplies. And Britain and France and Netherlands provided the other 16%. So 96% of Japan's oil supplies were deprived them by the sanctions that Roosevelt and he cajoled Britain, Netherlands and France into also boycotting them. So when Full economic sanctions were put onto Japan that they were deprived 96% of their oil imports. Uh, then it was almost inevitable. Japan's going to attack you. You know, you're provoking war. And his economic sanctions and the shunning of Japanese peace overtures sparked the Pearl Harbor attack and ultimately the US atomic bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the act of unparalleled brutality in all of American history. All quoting from uh, Herbert Hoover. President Herbert Hoover in his Freedom of Trade documents, Roosevelt's contemptuous refusal of Prime Minister Cornier's proposals for peace in the Pacific of September 1941 was a lost opportunity. The acceptance of these proposals was prayerfully urged by both the British and the American ambassadors in Japan. So British and American ambassadors, these are good proposals, let's accept them. We'll get everything we need without war. The terms Cornier proposed would have accomplished every American purpose except possibly the return of Manchuria. But even this was thrown open to discussion. The cynic will recall that Roosevelt was willing to provoke a great war on his flank in this remote question of Manchuria, and then gave Manchuria to the Communist Soviet Russia at the end of the war anyway. It's like Britain got involved in the First World War, Second World War, ostensibly to protect Poland, and at the end of it, betrays Poland in the hands of the Soviet Union and the whole of Eastern Europe for that matter, and lies for uh, generations about who killed all the Polish officers at the Katyn Forest Massacre and assassinated the Polish head of state, uh, General uh, Tchaikovsky, in Gibraltar on the 4th of July, 1943, and does all the cover-up necessary. Even today, you cannot access the records of communications between uh, the Downing Street Prime Minister's office and the White House in 1943. All that's still most secret. 80-something years later, still sealed. What are they hiding? And uh, it's pointed out that 
The facts were known to the Republican presidential candidate Thomas Dewey in 1944 presidential election, but he's too much of a gentleman to bring it out in his campaign against Roosevelt. But later on, it was exposed that Roosevelt knew and withheld the information about the coming war, which he was provoking from his generals and admiral in uh, Pearl Harbor. Herbert Hoover documents and freedom betrayed that American military officials strongly urged Franklin Delano Roosevelt accept the three-month standstill agreement offered by the Emperor of Japan in November 1941. Could have stopped the war. Japan was justly alarmed at the threat of the Soviet Union, and the 90 days delay could have kept war out of the Pacific. Now, isn't it amazing that Franklin Delano Roosevelt targeted the two countries in the world that were the most anti-communist, who were stopping the expansion of communism in Europe and in Asia? Germany and Japan were at that time, for all their faults, the most anti-communist countries in the world. And they happened to be, in fact, nobody killed more communists uh, than Germany. And Japan certainly was the biggest obstacle to Mao Zedong gaining control over China. So removing Japan and Germany as military forces and superpowers opened the way for the Soviet Union to take over the whole of Eastern Europe and the whole of China. And all this comes out of Herbert Hoover's book, um, Freedom Betrayed. The Secretary of War, Simpson, in his diary, disclosed that Roosevelt and his officials were seeking for a method to stimulate, read, provoke, an overt act of aggression from the Japanese, such as this, where civilians were being killed in Pearl Harbor with the bombing, and this is exactly what they wanted. Pictures like this, a civilian car shot up and um, people killed, and this is the overt act of aggression that was wanted by the other side. The, there are still many documents relating to Pearl Harbor which are still classified and have not yet been made public by the United States government. Many of these documents were actually destroyed by the US government during the war, which of course is illegal. Some of the public records of the United Kingdom containing Churchill's most secret wartime intelligence briefs have been marked as closed for 75 years, but we've passed that and still haven't released it, including sections dealing with events from November 1941 to March 1942. Missing. You can't uh, get hold of those in record. Franklin Delano Roosevelt famously said, in politics, nothing happens by accident. If it happens, you can bet it was planned that way. When politicians tell you it was an accident, well, think of this. If you do something stupid, well, you know, you're human. We all make mistakes. You do the same stupid thing twice, uh, well, what do you say? It's not just that, um, I mean, you're more than stupid. I mean, we're human if we make one mistake. If we make the same mistake twice, then we're stupid. We make the same mistake 10, 15, 20 times, you've got a hidden agenda. Governments can't be that stupid that they keep doing the wrong thing that always helps the communist and, and betrays their own country. When you do it consistently, you've got to have a hidden agenda. In Day of Deceit by Robert Stinnell, Stinnett, a memorandum prepared by Commander McCollum stated that a memorandum issued in the immediate pre-war period declared that only a direct attack on US interests would sway the American public or the Congress to favor direct involvement in the European war. Anderson and Secretary Knox offered eight specific plans to aggrieve the Japanese empire and provoke war with Japan. And here is the memorandum. It's not believed that in the present state of public opinion, the United States government is capable of declaring war against Japan without much ado. And it is barely possible that vigorous action on our part might lead the Japanese to modify their attitude. Therefore, the following course of action is suggested. Number or A. Make an arrangement with Britain for the use of British bases in the Pacific, particularly Singapore. So the Royal Navy starts to use Singapore. Make an arrangement with Holland for the use of 
the Dutch facilities as bases of supplies in Dutch East Indies. Give all possible aid to the Chinese government of Chiang Kai-shek. Send a division of long-range heavy cruisers to the Orient, Philippines or Singapore. Send two divisions of submarines to the Orient. Keep uh, up the main strength of the US fleet now in uh, the Pacific in the vicinity of Hawaii Islands. Insist that the Dutch refuse to grant Japanese demands for economic concessions, particularly oil. H. Completely embargo all US trade with Japan in collaboration with a similar embargo imposed by the British Empire. If by these means Japan could be led to commit an overt act of war, so much the better. This is the McCullum Memorandum. They were provoking war. If by these means Japan could be led to commit an overt act of war, so much the better. This memorandum became classified till 1994. Jonathan Daniels, Roosevelt's administrative assistant at the time, presented an eyewitness report. The blow was heavier than he had hoped it would necessarily be. But the risks paid off. Even the loss of life was worth the price. That's published in 1941, Pearl Harbor Sunday, the end of an era. Notice this war is on. Uh, Japan, war plans like Hawaii, Singapore, Wake, Guam, Islands, and so on. And notice this one, the Honolulu Advertiser. Japanese may strike over the weekend. This is the 30th of November. 30th of November, a week before Pearl Harbor. Japanese may strike over the weekend. This is the Honolulu Advertiser. And a nation ready for battle. Foreign affairs expert attacks a Tokyo madness and so on. And uh, here you can see, this is not a surprise. The newspapers were discussing in banner headlines that Japanese may attack over the weekend, a week before. And here again you can see, Tokyo desperate as talks collapse. Japan may strike over weekend. That's the Hilu Tribune Herald, published on the 30th of November 1941. It is beyond doubt that President Roosevelt wanted to get his entry, country into war, but for political reasons was most anxious to ensure that the first act of hostility came from the other side. He had to say, we've been attacked. The fact that we've provoked it and just about um, made it impossible for the enemy not to attack us isn't the point. They struck the first blow. For which reason he caused increasing pressure to be put on the Japanese to the point that no self-respecting nation could endure without resort to arms. Japan was meant by the American president to attack the United States. And that's President Herbert Hoover's conclusion in his scholarly book, Freedom Betrayed. As Oliver Littleton, the British Minister of Production, said in 1944, Japan was provoked into attacking America's Pearl Harbor. It is a travesty of history to say America was forced into war. In fact, this is also quoted by the British historian Captain Russell Grenfell, main fleet to Singapore, and quoted also by President Herbert Hoover in Freedom Betrayed. Interestingly, uh, you've got uh, this attitude that America was dragged into the war against their wishes. But Herbert Hoover documents that the United States didn't get dragged into the Second World War reluctantly. The US government provoked the Second World War on every level. They put up Poland into resisting Germany's demands for Danzig to be given to them, which was 95% German speaking, and um, that there were 3 million Germans being oppressed by the Polish government who should have been uh, including Germany's frontiers and which the South Treaty had taken away. There was all kinds of gaps and so on where there was legitimate concerns and Poland wanted to have Germany as an ally, but America bribed, blackmailed, threatened them to refuse these offers because Germany wanted Poland as the ally in the fight against the Soviet Union. In fact, Poland was very similar to Germany. 
had a similar kind of government. Their leader was a similar military type of dictator, walked around the same kind of uniforms and with the same kind of moustache. And so much so that you won't see a picture of the president of Poland because um, there was no president of Poland, he was a military dictator. And Poland was the fascist state in 1940 and it would have been very happy to be a German ally. America put Poland up to resisting Germany for no good reason. America promised things that they never delivered. And then they betrayed the country in the hands of the Soviet Union anyway and uh, organized the assassination of the president um, in, in exile, uh, General Sikorsky in Gibraltar in 1943. So America also put Britain up to giving a war guarantee to Poland and France up to getting a war guarantee to Poland. Unprecedented, Britain had never given a war guarantee to anyone in all of history before and Poland had never been a British ally before that date either. And this was all put up by America who promised aid to Britain and to Poland that never came. And so the American government provoked the Second World War and then stood back, made a mint of money, got South Africa's gold to pay for the weapons that they were giving to others. Britain has been paying its war debt to America to this present day. They're still paying their war debt to America. So America, America also snatched up all of Britain's islands that they could have, like uh, uh, the um, islands in the middle of the Indian Ocean and so on, all of Britain's gold, a vast amounts of things that they kept getting. It was like they fleeced Britain of all the wealth that they could have and bankrupted Britain while they made money selling them arms. They sold arms to Britain, but they gave the arms free to the Soviet Union. And the travesty of what went on in the Second World War um, needs to be known that there was a real corruption at the US government. And they didn't care about betraying all our friends in Eastern Europe. As somebody who did missionary work into Eastern Europe, with Bill Bathman, I've got a whole new view on the Second World War, speaking to people of Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, Ukraine, Poland, Romania, people who were betrayed. And they said, we never got any freedom. What freedom? What democracy? You betrayed us. What do you mean we betrayed you? And then they start speaking about Yalta and um, Operation Keelhaul and other treachery. William Chamberlain in America's Second Crusade wrote, it is scarcely possible in the light of this and many other known facts to avoid the conclusion that the Roosevelt administration sought the war that began at Pearl Harbor. The steps which made armed conflict inevitable would take months before the conflict broke out. Again, quoting from Freedom Betrayed. Then Secretary of State Hull issued his foolish ultimatum and we were defeated at Pearl Harbor. By Roosevelt insisting that Chinese Premier Chiang Kai-shek include Mao Zedong's communists in a coalition government, and Roosevelt's secret agreement at Yalta to betray Mongolia and Manchuria to the Soviets, future generations were betrayed. So Herbert Hoover points out, just like Britain said we're entering the Second World War to save Poland, and they end up betraying Poland and the whole of Eastern Europe in the hands of the same Soviets. And then Roosevelt's one big arg argument with Japan was Manchuria, but at the end of the war they betrayed Manchuria in the hands of the Soviets anyway. So the complete treachery of these Western people who claimed to be fighting for freedom and democracy. Absolute travesty. And people saw it at the time. Herbert Hoover saw it at the time. All of China was sacrificed to the communists in the years of President Truman. At the insistence of his left-wing advisors and General Marshall, the Second World War ended with 450 million Asiatic people betrayed under communist dictatorship. You know, what freedom and democracy? What good war? Herbert Hoover and Freedom Betrayed declared, I had warned the American people time and again against becoming involved in World War II. I stated repeatedly its only end would be to promote communism upon the earth, that we would impoverish the United States and the whole world. 
The situation of the world today is my vindication. He finally managed to get the book finished in 1968, and, uh, but the book was still suppressed for another 50 years, banned. It only came out in 2011, uh, 2013, I think, when I finally got a copy. And uh, Herbert Hoover's book would have destroyed the Democratic Party if it came out in the 1960s. And uh, they suppressed it because they knew the Democratic Party wouldn't have been able to continue with their war in Vietnam and things like that if the truth came out of the treachery that they were involved in the Second World War in Korea and so on. And so Red China can thank people like Franklin Delano Roosevelt and Truman for coming to power in China, which wouldn't have been possible without the war against Japan and the aid that went to the Soviet Union. Roosevelt ignored the whole communist infiltration into his administration. Much of it was to be exposed before his death. But of more importance, he ignored the whole international purpose of communism and its lack of morals and international relations. Three of the most evil people of the 20th century, FDR, Stalin, and Churchill. Stalin was the biggest mass murderer in the history of the world, um, but uh, FDR and Churchill saved the Soviet Union, enabled Ch Stalin to kill millions more. Its purpose and methods had been blatantly stated to the world since 1917, Bolshevik Revolution. Its statements and books were widely distributed in the United States. Roosevelt may not have been a communist, but his leanings towards Stalin and his blindness to communist activities arose partly from his own leftist leaning and partly from the usefulness of the communists in support of his administration politically through his 13 years in office. And his wife, Eleanor Roosevelt, she was a card-carrying communist. Proverbs 17.15 says, He who justifies the wicked, he who condemns the just, both of them alike on abomination to the Lord. His leanings towards Stalin and communists began with his recognition of the Soviet Union immediately upon his taking office in 1933. FDR became President of America in 1933, and immediately he recognized the Soviet Union and opened up diplomatic relations between America and the Soviet Union. During 15 years prior to this recognition, the Democratic and Republican administrations alike had barred any relations with the Soviet Union, a country which had returned huge numbers of mankind to slavery and was constantly conspiring against the welfare of other peoples, as documents in the Black Book of Communism written by ex-communists. By recognizing the Soviet Union, Roosevelt gave the Soviet Union certain respectability in a family of nations, but also of importance. By that act, he opened the door to communist penetration and conspiracies in the United States. It was proven later that the United States, not just Hollywood, but the Department of Defense, the, foreign, the State Department, riddled with communists, absolutely riddled. Two Chronicles 19.2, should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord, therefore the wrath of the Lord is upon you. In Herbert Hoover's Freedom Betrayed, General Douglas MacArthur uh, has his views report that the whole Japanese war was a madman's desire to get the United States into war, the madman being Franklin Delano Roosevelt. MacArthur was convinced that the financial sanctions in July 1941 were not only provocative, but Japan was bound to fight even if it was suicide. Unless these sanctions could be removed, as the sanctions carried every penalty of war except killing and destruction, no nation of dignity could take economic warfare like that for long. MacArthur stated, Roosevelt could have made peace with Cornier in September 1941. He could have obtained all American objectives in the Pacific and the freedom of China, and probably Manchuria. Cornier was authorized by the emperor to agree to complete withdrawal from China and even from Manchuria if needed. Callous indifference the American army beleaguered in the Pacific. I believe it was a desire of President Roosevelt and Prime Minister Churchill that we get into the war 
as they felt their allies could not win without us, and all our efforts to provoke the Germans to declare war on us had failed. MacArthur was bitter about Roosevelt's starvation of supplies at a time when the whole fate of the South Pacific and the Allies in Asia was at stake. When the Pacific, when the American army in the Philippines was being uh, starved and bombarded, America gave no resupply. You would have thought America's been attacked in the Pacific, their priority is the Pacific. They had an army on, on the Philippines, most of whom did not survive the war because Franklin Roosevelt saw no priority in helping the American army of General MacArthur in the Philippines. The most important priority of the US was to save the Soviet Union. Uncle Joe Stalin is about to be destroyed in Operation Barbarossa. This is the real priority in December 1941. And all American aid, in fact, statistically, 90% of all American manpower, weaponry, machinery went to Europe. Only 10% to the Pacific. So America is attacked in the Pacific, but most of the energy, time, money, and fuel goes to the war in Europe, especially to saving the Soviet Union. Who cares that a few hundred thousand American soldiers are dying in the Pacific? That doesn't matter. Joseph Stalin and the Soviet Union is about to be destroyed. We've got to save the Soviet Union. That's basically what the whole thing uh, was about. Bataan completely occupied by Japanese. The Japanese took the American army in, in uh, Philippines, most of whom died of starvation or abuse in the Japanese care during the war. And they could have been supported, but Franklin Roosevelt had no interest in the Americans in the Philippines. His whole interest was to save the Soviet Union under Joseph Stalin. These poor men, what they went through, the Bataan Death March, and Roosevelt showed his vindictiveness in many ways, Roosevelt said. MacArthur told Roosevelt, peace could be made with the Japanese any time after the Philippines was taken. With their supporting legs cut off, they were beaten. He said Roosevelt, however, was determined that General MacArthur should not command in the final movement on Japan because MacArthur had criticized FDR and that's unacceptable. MacArthur might have been a great general on the field, but he had criticized the politician. General MacArthur declared, we could have avoided all the losses of the atomic bomb and the entry of Russia into Manchuria had the Japanese peace overtures been accepted in early 1945. MacArthur told President Herbert Hoover in 1946, Truman's policies were enabling Russia to make a puppet state out of Manchuria, betraying all of China and Mongolia to communism. A member of the American First Committee, John Flynn, in September 1944, published The Truth About Pearl Harbor. So truth was even getting out then. Rear Admiral Frank Beatty, at that time of Pearl Harbor, was an aide to the Secretary of Navy, Frank Knox, testified. Prior to the 7th of December, it was evident even to me we were pushing Japan into a corner. The conditions we imposed upon Japan were so severe, we knew the nation could not accept them. We were forcing her so severely, we should have known she would react towards the United States. All her preparations in a military way, and we knew their overall import pointed that way. Jonathan Daniels, Roosevelt's administrative assistant at the time, presented our witness viewpoint. The blow was heavier than he had hoped it would necessarily be. But the risks paid off. Even the loss was worth the price. The loss of life was worth the price. It is an abomination for kings to commit wickedness, for a throne is established by righteousness. And FDR's throne was definitely built on wickedness. That's why uh, American General George Patton said, politicians are the lowest form of life on earth. Yes. Liberal Democrats are the lowest form of politicians. And this is a general who was America's greatest war hero on the ground, the most successful combat general, and murdered by his own government before the end of the war, murdered by the OSS. 
That's been subject of another Reformation signing presentation. Herbert Hoover observed, despite these physical losses and these moral political disasters, there are, and these international follies, despite the drift to collectivism, despite degeneration government, despite the demographic intellectuals. By the way, this is um, Obama's staff on the day that uh, Trump moved into the White House. You recognize Jen Saki over here? Um, I mean, just look at uh, all of that dissatisfaction. Despite the corruption of our government and the moral corruptions of our people, we still hold to Christianity. We still have the old ingenuity in our scientific industrial progress. We have 35 million children marching through our schools, 2.5 million in our institutes of higher learning. I don't know if that's actually good, but still, I'm quoting them. The promises of a great America abides in the millions of colleges throughout the land where men and women are still resolute in freedom. In their hearts, the spirit of America still lives. The boys and girls from those homes will someday throw off these disasters and frustrations and will recreate the America again. In order to anticipate problems and threats in the future, we need to study the past. Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. If we do not know our own history, we will simply have to endure all the same mistakes, sacrifices, and absurdities all over again. The greatest Russian author of the 20th century, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, said that. Now these things became our examples, the scripture says, to the intent that we should not lust after evil things, as they also lusted. Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they're written for our admonition. 1 Corinthians 10. Our Lord Jesus said, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Truth does not fear investigation. When governments are sealing secrets from decades ago, it makes you wonder what are they hiding. The Bible tells us to hate evil, to love good, and to establish justice in the gate. Now, there's a lot of books I've based this presentation on, including Morgan Stewart's Pearl Harbor, The Story of the Secret War. Pearl Harbor, The Story of the Secret War. And uh, FDR Leads the Nation to War. Kimmel Short and Pearl Harbor, The Final Report. Pearl Harbor, The Mother of All Conspiracies, Pearl Harbor and Beyond, An Account of Treachery and Treason, Pearl Harbor Betrayed, The True Story of Man and Nation Under Attack, Fighting the Shadow War, A Divided America in a World at War, Operation Snow, How a Soviet Mole in FDR's White House Triggered Pearl Harbor, Pearl Harbor Minute by Minute, Sunday in Hell, The Truth About Pearl Harbor, but the best to me is Freedom Betrayed, Herbert Hoover's Secret History of the Second World War and its Aftermath. But I'd like, after giving so much negative, to conclude with something very positive and uplifting. And that's this wonderful testimony of Matsuo Fushida from Pearl Harbor to Calvary. Matsuo Fushida is best known for being the commander who led the devastating air attack on Pearl Harbor on the 7th of December 1941. But after the war, Fushida became a Christian evangelist who conducted evangelistic outreaches throughout Japan, throughout the United States and Europe. Fushida was the son of a master of a primary school and his grandfather was actually a samurai warrior. Matsuo Fushida entered the Imperial Japanese Naval Academy in 1921, graduated Mishipman in 1924, promoted to Ensign 1925, sub-lieutenant 1927. He was promoted to lieutenant commander in 1936, accepted Navy Staff College and joined the aircraft carrier Okagai in 1939 as commander of the air group. In October 1941, Fushida was made commander under the command of Vice Admiral Nagomo. He had six aircraft carriers and 423 aircraft, and Commander Fushida was responsible for the coordination of the aerial parts of the attack on the Pacific Fleet in Pearl Harbor, uh, which was uh, very well planned and well carried out, mind you. 
impeccable research and espionage to know exactly where the ships were. His men knew how to identify them, and they were all assigned off whether which dive bomber had to go for what, which torpedo planes had to go for which targets. He was in the first wave of 183 dive bombers, torpedo bombers, and level bombers and fighters, which took off from the carriers 370 kilometers north of Oahu and targeted the U.S. Pacific Fleet at Pearl Harbor. At 7.40 Hawaiian time, Fashir ordered Tenkai take attack position, and he slid back the canopy of his Kate torpedo bomber, fired a green flare to signal the attack. He then instructed his radio operator to send the coded signal, talk, 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 or strike, which they did. And TORA was the acronym for Tosukigi uh, Rakigi, or torpedo attack in Japanese, Tora means tiger. So Toya, Toya, Toya literally means tiger, 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 which is an abbreviation of torpedo attack. When the attack on Pearl Harbor hit at 7.55 a.m., many American sailors or soldiers were on leave or were sleeping late. They should have been in church, but they were not. Seven battleships were lined up on Battleship Row, including the Nevada, the Arizona, the West Virginia, the Oklahoma, the Maryland, Tennessee, California. And these are actual Japanese aerial photographs of the uh, destruction being taken place, high-flying bombers taking these pictures during the actual combat. The Oklahoma capsized. The West Virginia and California were sunk. The Nevada was damaged and beached near the mouth of Pearl Harbor. If it had sunk in the middle, it would have bottled the entire fleet up. Tennessee, Maryland, and Pennsylvania were damaged. Ten other ships were sunk or seriously damaged. The Arizona sank with a 1,000 sailors on board after a stupendous explosion of its forward magazine. A bomb went straight to the deck into the magazine and the entire ship blew up. Just eight days earlier, the Americans had published a picture of the Arizona with the words, it's significant that despite the claims of air enthusiasts, no battleship has yet been sunk by bombs. Well, pride comes before fall. As the first wave returned to the carriers, Fashida remained over the target to assess the damage and to observe the second wave attack. And he returned to his carrier only after the second wave had completed its mission. 21 large flak holes were found in his aircraft, and the main control wires were barely holding together. It's incredible that he survived so many hits to his aircraft and still returned to his ship. The Japanese lost 29 aircraft in the attack on Pearl Harbor. The US Pacific Fleet lost 21 ships, including almost every battleship, and 188 of the aircraft destroyed, another 159 damaged, 2,400 lives lost. Not quite as many as the Danish casualties to the British Copenhagen fleet um, under Nelson, but tremendous destruction. And these are just some of the pictures from the day. In Fashida's memoirs, he remarks being upset about the Admiral's cancelling of the third wave attack, which would have destroyed Pearl Harbor's fuel tanks and dry dock facilities. I was upset and thought, what stupidity? But the decision belonged to the commander. It would not do any good if I complained. It was war, he said, and after the successful Pearl Harbor attack, Fushida was granted an audience with the emperor, who remember in uh, Japanese culture, Shintoism, emperor is a living god. 19th of December 1942, Fushida led the first of two waves of 188 aircraft in air raid on Darwin, Australia. Any city named after Darwin kind of deserves it. On the 5th of April, he led another series of air attacks against the Royal Navy bases in Ceylon, where Ceylon tea comes from. That's now Sri Lanka, correct? Anthony, you've been there. Yeah. Salon, that's now Sri Lanka. So Fashida led that attack too. 
1942, Fashida is recovering from an emergency shipborne appendectomy, so he had appendicitis, when he's wounded in the Battle of Midway. He was on a ship's bridge during the morning attack by the US aircraft, and the Akagi was hit, and a chain reaction from burning fuel live bombs began the destruction of the ship. <coughs> an explosion threw him to deck. He broke his ankle. After recuperation, Fashida spent the rest of the war as a staff officer. Two weeks before the American invasion of Guam, Fashida was ordered to Tokyo. When the Japanese failed to repel the invasion of Guam, Vice Admiral Kakuti and his staff chose Sipiku. That's the Shumurai ritual of disembowelment with your dagger. Again, the sword of death had missed me only by inches, Fashida said. But what did it mean? If he had stayed in Guam, he would have had to commit suicide along with the rest of the Japanese high command. The day before the first atom bomb was dropped in Hiroshima, he was in Hiroshima to attend a conference. A long-distance call from naval headquarters required him to return to Tokyo. As he ate breakfast in Yama, Yamato, 200 kilometers away, Fashida learned everyone he'd been working with in Hiroshima had perished in an atomic explosion. It's like some angels looking after him, you would think. The day after the atomic bombing, he returned to Hiroshima to assess the damage. And all of the members of his party died of radiation, but Fushida exhibited no symptoms of the poisoning. Each of the officers who accompanied Fushida to investigate the devastation of Hiroshima showed strange signs of this until then unknown illness. One by one, they died through radiation poisoning. As Fushida returned to Kashihari to help his wife raise their children, he was depressed. Life had no taste, no meaning. I'd missed death so many times, and for what? What did it all mean? After the war, Fushida was called to testify at the trials of Japanese military leaders. And when General Douglas MacArthur summoned Fushida to testify in the Tokyo war crimes trials, Captain Fushida expressed his disgust and declared, everyone should know that war is war and cruel acts occurred on both sides, not to mention the atomic bombs, which is uh, surely one of the greatest acts of um, horror ever done in history. And yet, uh, war leaders were put on trial and hung uh, not even shot by a firing sword, which would be a soldier's death. The petty vindictiveness of the Allies infuriated Fushida. He denounced this victor's justice. In 1947, he met his former flight engineer, Kuzo Kanagasi, who he thought had died in the Battle of Midway, but had actually survived. However, Kanagasi reported that a young Christian woman, Peggy Cobble, had cared for them in the prison camps, despite her missionary parents having been killed by Japanese soldiers on the island of Panay in the Philippines. Peggy Cobble's parents were missionaries, teachers in Japan until 1939. They then relocated to the Philippines. The Japanese conquered the Philippines in 1941 and beheaded both of Peggy's parents on Sunday morning, 19th December 1943. To Fushida, the love for your enemies is inexplicable because the Fushida Code of a samurai requires revenge against the murder of one's parents to restore honor. So he became obsessed with trying to understand why would anyone treat the enemies with kindness and forgiveness? The extraordinary example of Peggy Cobble and Jacob de Cesar inspired Fushida to know more about the God of the Christians. When Japanese prisoners of war asked the 18-year-old Peggy Cobble why she volunteered to help them, her reply was, because Japanese soldiers killed my parents. In 1948, as Fushida was passing by the bronze statue of Hashiko, that's this, this loyal dog who waited every day for his owner to come back uh, at the railway station, um, uh, outside Shibuya railway station. He's handed a pamphlet giving the testimony of Jacob de Chazor, a member of the Doolittle raid, 
who was captured when his B-25 bomber ran out of fuel over occupied China. In his pamphlet, I Was a Prisoner of Japan, de Chazon, a former U.S. Army Air Force sergeant and bombardier, relates his testimony of imprisonment, torture, and coming to God. Jacob de Chazon was the bombardier of B-25, number 16. After taking off from the USS Hornet and dropping bombs in Nagoya, Japan, they flew to China but ran out of fuel over Japanese-controlled China and was captured. Now, this is the first time in history that bombers like this, which, which belonged to the U.S. Army Air Force, was flown off an aircraft carrier. Not thought possible. It weren't designed to fly off aircraft carriers. But because America wanted to uh, have some kind of target on Tokyo, they tried this, and this was Doolittle's raid. Doolittle was a tremendous American flyer who had won all kinds of prizes. And so this is very historic, taking these massive bombers, B-25s, to fly off an aircraft carrier. But of course, they could never land back on an aircraft carrier. So the only hope was to just keep going and try and land in China where they might be able to survive. So it was a bit of a suicide one-way uh, bombing raid. And Jacob de Sousa was part of this and he ended up being captured. And uh, here's uh, Lieutenant Colonel Doolittle uh, with some of the crew on the USS Hornet just before the raid on uh, Tokyo. And taking off, this must have been very tense because people couldn't have even known for sure that the plane would take off and stay off the ground. Uh, this was a real experiment and choppy seas and all that. But they succeeded. They bombed Japan and went on to China. And here's Lieutenant Colonel Doolittle in China after um, he reached a uh, free China section. They were, but de Chazo's team was captured after parachuting to the ground. De Chazo was imprisoned for 40 months. 34 of these months were soldier confinement, and he was beaten, malnourished, and three of his crew were executed by firing squad. The fourth member, Lieutenant Bob Murder, died of starvation. After 25 months of hating his captors, a Bible came into his hands. For over three weeks, he had it, just three weeks, but the Bible changed his life completely. He began to learn Japanese and began to treat his captors with respect. He resolved to bring the message of Christ to Japan. After returning to America, de Chazo attended Seattle Pacific College, returned to Japan to preach the gospel. After 40 months as captives, three of the four surviving American prisoners, emaciated, arrived at Chongqing in China, late August 1945. And that's Jacob de Chazo, Bob Hutt, and Chase Neeson. And here's de Chazo preaching in Japan. Uh, in fact, he started his work. Interesting. The testimony of Monsieur Fushida, the foreword's written by Florence de Chazon, the wife of uh, Jacob de Chazon. So he established a church in Nagoya, the very city he had bombed years before. Fushida became intrigued with the Christian faith as he read this testimony in this tract. And the shocking examples of Christians able to forgive the enemies staggered Fushida. That's when I met Jesus. Looking back, I can see now that the Lord had laid his hand on me so that I might serve him. Fashida read the tract on the spot and on the train he saw an advertisement for the book of the same title, I Was a Prisoner of Japan. And when he disembarked, he hid for a bookstore and he purchased it. And de Chazar's story engrossed Fashida. Determined to understand what had motivated de Chazar, Fashida bought a Bible from a Japanese man on the street. When he read, Father forgive them, for they do not know what they do, Fashida realized this was what the Kovals had been praying before the execution. 1949, Fushida purchased a Bible at the same 
Shibiru Station, we had received a pamphlet where there's the statue of that faithful dog who'd waited for years outside waiting for his master to return. As he read the Gospels, he came to understand the reason for the life of forgiveness and mercy that motivated Peggy and Jacob. It was the crucifixion of Jesus and his words in the Gospel, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. On the 14th of April 1950, he surrendered to Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour. By the time he had completed reading the Gospel of Luke, Fashid had become a Christian. He didn't know any Christians, but now he began to declare himself to be a Christian. As Christianity was considered the occupier's religion in Japan, this brought him a lot of reproach from his former friends and family. Pitch and Glenn Wagner of the Pocket Testament League of Japan met with Fashida and encouraged him to join them in open-air outreach. In the business section of Ashaka, as the Americans stood to speak, fewer than 40 Japanese would stop to listen. But when Fashida, the hero of Pearl Harbor, stood up, the crowd swelled rapidly and rush-hour traffic stopped, hundreds gathered and even the police listened in. This was the beginning of Fashida's new career as an evangelist. Soon he filled an auditorium in Osaka and 500 Japanese came forward at that rally to surrender to Christ. Almost every newspaper in Japan reported on it. He described his conversion as it was like having the sunrise and he preached against Japanese egocentrism and xenophobia. Like Paul on Mars Hill, he used Japanese cultural examples to communicate the gospel of Christ and uh, one of his uh, books was Being God Samurai, which Japanese would understand that concept. Captain Fushida went on from being a vital part of Japanese military attack on the United States to being a vital part of God's missionary offensive into hearts, minds and souls of Japanese and later of Americans and Europeans too. In May 1950, Fushida and Shazar actually met for the first time. In May he visited Shazar, knocked on his door and said, I have desired to meet you Mr. Shazar. My name is Monsieur Fushida. Deshazo recognized the name and said, come in, come in. The former enemies embraced his brothers in Christ. I mean, can you imagine that's their later in life? In 1951, Fushida published an account of the Battle of Midway, the battle that doomed Japan, the Japanese Navy story. In 1952, he toured the United States as a member of the worldwide Christian missionary army of sky pilots. I remember the thrill that was mine when in one of my first meetings, I led my first soul to Christ in America. And he is one of my countrymen. February 1954, Reader's Digest published Fashida's story on the attack on Pearl Harbor. And he wrote, From Pearl Harbor to Golgotha, which was later renamed From Pearl Harbor to Calvary, which we have in our bookshop and on the table back there. A 1955 expansion of his book Midway, The Battle That Doomed Japan, the Japanese Navy story, was expanded. And then he wrote his autobiography for that one day, the memoirs of Matsuya Fashida the commander of the attack on Pearl Harbor. Published in Japan in 2007, later translated to English and published in 2011. It said that the reason for a state to nurture its soldiers for years is to use them for just one day. My entire youth was dedicated for that one day. In Midway, the battle at doomed Japan, Fushida wrote, five minutes, who would have believed that the tide of battle could shift in that brief interval of time? We had been caught flat-footed in the most vulnerable position possible, decks loaded with planes armed and fueled for attack. And if you've studied the Battle of Midway, the amount of coincidences that led to, at that very moment, uh, all the combat air patrol was down at sea level and uh, the deck was filled with planes needing to be fueled and, and bombed. And at that very moment, the Americans found the fleet and they were able to break through after wave after wave of American planes had been shot down without a single survivor. 
torpedo planes, bomber planes, dive bombers, all destroyed trying to attack their, them. But at one point, uh, another um, flight came and they just found it's wide open. And there was no combat air patrol left above. They were all at sea level and they were able to come straight in and take out four carriers, which was, it shifted the whole balance of power in the Pacific. One battle, Battle of Midway, which was an intelligence breakthrough because the Americans had broken the Japanese purple code. Hoshida turned down an offer from the Japanese government to organize the new air force. He faced down an angry pilot who pulled out a knife and threatened to kill him, but this man later came to Christ. He is standing at Pearl Harbor pointing to the direction that he flew in on the attack where he led the Japanese planes. Fashida ministered in prisons. He led people to Christ even in cells of condemned murderers and he formed Calvary clubs in prisons. Mature Fashida related the testimony of Peggy Koval and her brave parents all over Japan. He quoted a testimony, but the Holy Spirit has washed away my hatred and has replaced it with love. The Kovals had gone to death singing hymns joyfully, praying for the conversion of the enemies. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Machia Fashida was one of the fruits of their faith. Fashida spent the rest of his life as an evangelist, taking the gospel of Christ throughout Japan, throughout the United States, America, and Europe. And you can get his testimony. I've summarized it in this here Machia Fashida from Pearl Harbor to Calvary. We have the tracts available. On the table, it's also on our, our frontline website. Uh, any tracks you can download. I actually wrote this specifically back when my son Calvin had to go with the with the scouts to um, Japan. It was for uh, the anniversary of the bombing of, of uh, Hiroshima, and I was wondering if this was a bit of a manipulation thing, if this was propaganda. So. I did a research into the atom bombs and was surprised to find all American military leaders opposed the use of atom bombs on Japan, including General MacArthur. And uh, to um, also get the testimony of Machia Fushida, I got this written up at that time and printed so that my son and others from South Africa would have something to distribute in Japan, not only to other um, scouts, but also to Japanese people that they came across. And what a great testimony. So that's available for anyone who's interested. Any questions, any comments on Machia Fushida, Pearl Harbor, Copenhagen, the fleet? So the, so the techn, uh, techniques, the American techniques hasn't changed much in the last hundred years, do you think? Well, it seems the deep state goes back a long way. There means some very treacherous people out there, Woodrow Wilson, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And of course, in recent years, we've had the Carters, the Obamas, the Clintons, um, and now Biden. Um, yeah, deep state. And occasionally you get a decent person like Franklin, like uh, Teddy Roosevelt or um, Herbert Hoover. Occasionally you get a decent person like Ronald Reagan and um, Donald Trump. But most of the people in the White House seem to be people of the deep state who, whose main job is to cause wars and betray enemies, uh, betray allies. To quote a great African freedom fighter, Jonas Savimbi once said to me and a group of Americans as bring into, you need to control Angola. It is better to be America's enemy than America's friend. If you're America's enemy, you may be bought, but if you're America's enemy, uh, if you're America's friend, you'll certainly be sold. And then, 
Jonas Vimy made a joke. He said to American guests, do you know why there hasn't been a revolution in America in over, 100, in over 200 years? Silent. And after a while he said, there's no American embassy in America. Of course, the amount of countries in the world with the American embassy is where the revolution began. Even in South Africa, it was documented that the U US embassy had an uh, American consulate reading room in Soweto in 1976. And in the American consulate reading room in Soweto, it wasn't books about Thomas Jefferson and uh, John Adams and so on, or George Washington. It was about Vladimir Lenin, Ma Mao Zedong, Karl Marx. It was all revolutionary stuff. French Revolution, Bolshevik Revolution, uh, Pol Pot, Khmer Rouge, the whole... The Americans were um, basically preparing the ground for revolution in Soweto before 1976. Documented by Ada Parker. She uh, did the research on, on how the American embassy in South Africa was working to bring about revolution in South Africa, dovetailing with what the Communist Party was doing. And this happened in so many countries. How many countries in the world have there been assassinations and coup d'etats uh, organized by the US embassy? including in Iran. Iran's got good reason not to trust America. Of course, the present government there is evil and anti-Christian, but uh, the Iranian government before elected government was overthrown and even um, invaded by the Americans to give aid to the Soviets. But uh, when Iran was America's best ally in the Middle East, they were betrayed, the Shah of Iran was betrayed, and the Ayatollahs were brought to power. So when you look at the problems in the world today, where do the problems come from? Countries which America set up, the Soviet Union, Red China, North Korea, countries that they betrayed. Um, even the problems right now, whether you are talking about what's going on in um, the attacks on Israel with Hamas, well, Hamas's main aid comes from Iran. Iran was one of these countries which the US State Department betrayed in the days of Jimmy Carter. And so the Ayatollahs there right now are fruits of US foreign policy. Just think of Zimbabwe, another fruit of US foreign policy. Cuba, Nicaragua, I mean, we've got no ends of examples. Any other comments, questions, complaints, criticisms? What, happened, what would have happened if America stayed out of all wars? Would there be a different world? There'd be no Soviet Union. No red China, there wouldn't have been a Cold War, there wouldn't have been an Iron Curtain, there wouldn't have been a Berlin Wall. Um, China could still be a, a free nationalist country, not under the communists. So we'd still have, still have Rhodesia. Uh, there'd be a lot of good things around. I mean, you just look at the mess in the world today that's been caused by Woodrow Wilson and FDR's uh, warmongering. And can you even begin to imagine the damage caused by Obama's Arab Spring of 2011, overthrowing the governments of Egypt and Libya, and the chaos that's come from that, that um, the millions and millions of Muslims who fled the wars in Syria and Egypt and Libya, pouring into Europe, causing a demographic uh, time bomb there as well. So the chaos caused, we had 15 million Christians in the Middle East in 2008, before the Arab Spring. Today, there's not even 12 million Christians left in the Middle East. The only part of the world where the number of Christians is going down, not just percentage, but numbers. Because America's betrayed the countries which had the most Christians in the Middle East, Egypt and um, Syria and Iraq. There used to be 1.6 million Christians in Iraq. Now, 
John Mike, would you know how many Christians are left in Iraq now? I don't even think there's 100,000 left now. There were 1.6 million living under freedom and peace under uh, Saddam Hussein. But the moment Saddam Hussein got uh, replaced, chaos came in, and now you've got Muslim militants. Iraq is immeasurably worse now than it was before America got involved. I think Saddam trusted Christians more than he actually trusted his own people. Apparently all his bodyguards were Christians, and even his cooks in the kitchen were Christians. Because Christians would not uh, assassinate. So Saddam Hussein may have been a dictator, but he knew he could trust the Christians. And you go into the Baptist church in downtown Baghdad, and the organ in the Baptist church is gift of his excellency, um, Saddam Hussein. I don't know if that's still there. I don't know if the church is still there. Um, a lot of them were bombs during the um, invasion, but I think a lot of them survived as well. But... Uh, Having worked in Iraq, what would you say the condition is for Christians now, John Michael? I think, especially with the Shia um, pressure, there's still a lot of um, animosity towards Christians. But Which is interesting because we were working in a place called Nazaria. Nazaria actually means the place of the Christians. I don't think you find any Christians there either. But most of the Christians are up in the north, um, towards Mosul and those places. Kurdistan and Baghdad. But down in the south, you find very few. Apparently, when um, Mel Gibson was making the Passion of the Christ, he wanted people speaking Aramaic. He, he found them in Iraq. There were uh, Christians in Iraq. So he got a lot of people to, who could speak Aramaic uh, straight from, from Iraq. Uh, Iraq had a long-standing Christian tradition going back centuries, over a millennium. So is there much resentment for America in Iraq today? <laughs> I think with what's been happening in Gaza with Israel, and I think the animosity is actually picked up because obviously you see the Shia being supported by Iran, and there's a very strong bond between Iraq and Iran, and that obviously reciprocates against America. So yes. But I mean, are, are Iraqis feeling grateful that America liberated them, or are they feeling bitter that America interfered and messed things up? No, I think it's just the situation worsens. Yeah. I mean, that's the problem. They go and they make the situation worse. Yeah, the dictatorship of Saddam, I think, was a pleasure compared to what they have now. Yeah, I've heard that. I mean, that's the thing. Especially the Christians were kind of left alone by Saddam Hussein. And so, um, under Saddam Hussein, they had a high standard of living and more peace and you know, the museums and everything. But there was so much looting of the museums and artifacts and the zoo, uh, the devastation. Some South Africans went up to Baghdad and rescued many of the animals who, who were devastated by the bombing. And, and you often don't think about what this does to historic artifacts and what this does to the animals in a country when a war goes on like that. But uh, America, I think, went into Iraq, which was actually a pretty well-run, stable country, and turned it into a terrible mess. They still up in the north. They still have bases up in the north, which have been recently attacked by Iran. Surprising that they still have anything there. But I see they like to use foreign uh, civilian contractors, as they like to call them. Is that so that they can have less casualty figures of Americans because a foreigner doesn't have to get reported? Well, we used to be telling that in the days, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so we'll try and get John Michael some other nights over here to give a report back. He spent quite a few years going in the Middle East in all kinds of interesting places as a contractor doing 
work for the U.S. government, I presume, in many cases? Okay, Iraq was many U.S. government, but Afghanistan um, was for the EU, European Union, mm -hmm. and then currently looking after the World Bank <laughs> in Mogadishu, which is all the finances from the world. What an interesting place to be, Mogadishu. Yeah. <laughs> Any other questions? Yes. Uh, oh. With all the deceptions and that, am I crazy to think that America going into Vietnam but leaving Cuba totally alone, which is right near their border, how did that, is that not a hard sell to the American public? Did the American public not, not sort of notice that? Yes, it, it's bizarre. Um, somebody else from America wrote an interesting book about Rhodesia Betrayed. We've got that book here, where it's strange that America should spend blood uh, like water in Vietnam to stop communism advancing a few inches while they are spending huge amount of efforts to betray a country in Africa which, if it would be left alone, would prevent the advancement of communism for generations. So they would be betraying an anti-communist country in Rhodesia while propping up a corrupt government in Vietnam uh, and failing to prevent communism advancing in Vietnam while ignoring communism in Cuba. So if the goal was to fight communism, they could have done a much better job, like not help the Soviet Union and Red China, just for starters. That could have helped a lot, not help the ANC. If they really want to fight communism, they could have done a much better job. Um, but yes, how did they convince people in America that sending your sons to go and fight in Vietnam was a good idea? but ignoring the communists in Cuba, and now opening a sudden border and letting them just pour in who knows how many terrorists amongst the millions who've crossed the border since uh, the stolen election of 2020. To think America can go to the stage where they've got worse elections than Zimbabwe. You know, in Zimbabwe, you don't get arrested in Zimbabwe for saying the election's stolen and the government's rigged the elections and this was a fraudulent election. So you've got more freedom of speech in Zimbabwe than you have in America. People have gotten arrested in America for saying the election was stolen, the election denial, but in Zimbabwe, everyone's an election denial, and it's not a problem. You know, the government steals the election, but you're allowed to say the government stole the election, whereas in America, you're not even allowed to say it. I remember seeing an anonymous quote that said, trust not the actors or the politicians, for they are taught to lie for bread. Interesting quote, where does this come from? Is this an ancient quote? Sounds like sort of Socrates type of quote or Cicero, something from ancient Rome or Greece. But obviously, um, right at the roots of everything, it's in Satan's interest to have wars. Yes. That these people are all minions of Satan. Well, very much. Uh, I mean, these, these kind of war parties, this is why they hate Donald Trump so much, I think, because he's the only president America's had in generations that didn't start a new war. And in fact, he stopped wars. And I think it's quite right that if he had been present, uh, there wouldn't have been the Ukraine-Russian war. And I don't think you'd have this present war you've got in um, uh, Israel with Hamas either. Uh, there's so much that's gone on in the last few years, which is as a result of the stolen election, the fraud of trying to suggest that this brain-dead imbecile um, Biden got more votes than any other president in the history of America. He didn't even campaign. He is hiding in his basement. And here's... Trump getting stadiums packed out, the most popular man in American political history, and someone of this non-entity imbecile who can't string two words together, who can't put two feet in front of himself without tripping over himself, falling flat in his face, 
And he's meant to have gotten the most votes in the history of America. And if you question that, you are some kind of domestic terrorist. You're not meant to question the election results in America, which was obviously about as fraudulent as they've ever been. To think that America's reached a stage of being a banana republic where you can have totally fraudulent elections, and then people running the media who can come out with such imbecility that um, you can get into trouble for saying there's only two genders, or a marriage can only be between a man and a woman. I don't know if you've seen, but Daily Wire's just bring out a new comedy on uh, uh, transformed sports, uh, where they're taking the mickey out of men getting involved in women's sports. And it's, it's, a, it's just begging for comedy, because it, it is such a ridiculous situation. And yet now, you question that, you can be in trouble. Professors lose their jobs in universities. People can get uh, kicked out of the pastorate for making a basic statement like biologically there's only two genders. And uh, so you've reached that kind of insanity. But then considering you can go to war for freedom and peace and then hand over the whole of Central and Eastern Europe to communist dictatorship and say this is a good war for freedom and democracy and the world's better off. You know, if you can get away with that kind of lies, I suppose anything's possible. Are you Anything significant um, with regards to the papacy during the Second World War? Uh, sorry, the, the what? I missed that word. Are you aware of anything significant regarding the papacy during the Second World War? Papacy, I don't understand oh, the word. The the oh, the, oh, the papacy. Yeah, the papacy. Well, um, I know that the, the papacy is often involved behind the scenes, a lot of uh, strange things. I'm not aware that they were doing anything on that side as far as Japan goes. But um, we can say this as far as the atomic bombs goes. It's interesting that they chose the two most Christian cities in Japan. Most Christians in Japan were in Nagasaki and, and Hiroshima. And so the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki crippled Christianity in Japan for generations to come because that was where most of the Christians were. They were Christian university cities. Hiroshima and Nagasaki, 15,000 Christians died just in Nagasaki alone. Just Nagasaki. And uh, that, it was a, a horrible thing. Who chose those cities and why did they choose the most Christian concentrations in, in the whole of Japan for testing the atomic bombs? But that's another story. We've got studies on that. But out of this horrible saga, at least you get some wonderful testimonies like Machia Fashida's mm -hmm. conversion. That's, that just gives one hope that what man means for evil, God can use for good. And God can work all things together for good mm -hmm. for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Is there any more conversions of Japanese? Well, that's about the most prominent one I personally know of, but I'm sure there have been some other amazing testimonies. That, that just stands out to me as most extraordinary. Wasn't there an Iraqi Air Force general who was a dedicated Christian in Iraq? I seem to recall testimony. But I think he's a Christian for a long time, going on before, even before, yes. So there's, and he apparently was one of the most trusted advisors for Saddam Hussein because he knew this, this Christian would not lie. He would tell him the truth. Do you remember his name? Yeah, it's an Air Force general in Saddam Hussein's high command. And he got into trouble often for saying things that the government did not want to hear. But he was a principled Christian, dedicated um, evangelical in the Iraqi Air Force. So you do get, God has his faithful people, and like Daniel, he could be in governments of, of wicked people but not compromise. Mm.
But that must be very, very hard. To be in any political position without compromising is amazing. Well, let's pray. Perhaps two or three would like to lead us in prayer. Let's bring Japan before the Lord. And, of course, the battle's going on right now in Israel and Iran. Let's pray for uh, the conflicts that have been besetting the Middle East, like Iraq. And, of course, uh, John Michael's going to be heading out next week to uh, Somalia. So pray for Mogadishu and Somalia as well. Let's pray.